Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development's bi-weekly speaker series podcast. This week, we are joined by Priyadarshini Joshi, Senior Project Officer for the Global Education Monitoring Report at UNESCO. I'm sitting down with her after her virtual appearance at the Harvard Kennedy School on April 9th, 2021, where she discussed the effects of COVID-19 on education systems, sharing insights from the Global Education Monitoring Report. Welcome, Priyadarshini. Can you start by telling us a bit more about the Global Education Monitoring Report and your work with UNESCO? Thank you, Manoj, uh, for inviting me for this podcast and uh, welcome listeners. Uh, as Manoj said, I work at the Global Education Monitoring Report. We monitor education progress in the Sustainable Development Goals era, whose vision is to integrate economic, social, and environmental sustainability aspects to help the people and planet thrive and survive. So we have been around for a while, you know, since two, 2002 as the key monitoring mechanism during the Education for All uh, or the Millennium Development Goals era. And we have the privilege and the responsibility to be editorially independent within UNESCO, which allows us to objectively hold education actors to account and monitor them. And so our work spans the gamut of monitoring. You know, we monitor education indicators under SDG4. We talk about financing. We look at education's role in other sustainable development goals. We advance the data and monitoring policy conversation. We take a descriptive, critical, and analytical take on pressing global issues such as sustainability, accountability, migration and displacement, inclusion. And we've always had a persistent focus on equity and intersecting disadvantages. My own work within the team has uh, focused on education in the sustainable development goals and in emphasizing the intersections between education and SDGs. I'm also a key contributor on education's role in non-state actors, and I'm leading the development of the upcoming South Asia Regional Report on the topic. And I draw on my research background on school choice and competition to build this institutional work. Thank you. Thanks so much, Priyadarshini. So linked to your, what you just said, uh, my next question is how has this work shifted with COVID? Are you seeing a large impact on children's education and learning globally? I think uh, just to respond on the work, uh, COVID has of course affected everyone, right? Both at the personal level, but also professionally. When COVID hit, I was in the middle of leading the consultation phase of the non-state actors report and was traveling to India and to South Africa in February and March. In the team, we were finalizing our discussion on inclusion. We had agreed uh, to focus on technology in 2023. And when you think about these three reports together, you know, inclusion, non-state actors and technology, it is an unfortunate coincidence, but all are highly relevant for the COVID situation. So I would say that COVID has become embedded in our ongoing work. Um, But uh, just to highlight again that we build on our existing foundations. We have always emphasized equity and intersecting disadvantages. We're focused on uh, thinking through what it means to build resilient, inclusive systems. Uh, We have argued for multi-sectoral approaches to development, for comprehensive system reforms that incorporate refugees and vulnerable migrants, children with disabilities, um, women and children. And we view education progress as a shared responsibility that requires strong enabling environments and education financing. So, you know, COVID doesn't change our views, but I, but I think it brings into urgent and universal focus what we have always been saying. We did a blog series on, uh, from various country and expert perspectives. You know, I did a blog on Nepal then, 
our finance team colleagues have been keeping close watch on the financing situation and how it's been um, evolving. Uh, when it comes to discussions of children's impact, of course, there's no getting around the fact that it was an unprecedented global crisis. A year later, more than 1.6 billion children have lost instructional time for many months at a time, if not much for much of the last year, and many children are still not back in school. So schools uh, also, we have to remember, are much more than places of classroom engagement. At one point, the World Food Program had estimated that uh, 352 million children were without school meals uh, due to COVID-19 closures. Uh, the research is still nascent, but there will be many discussions of the trillions in economic loss from this learning loss, as well as the long-term effects. Thank you so much, Prithrasneep. We understood from your presentation that COVID has impacted children's education differently around the world. Could you tell us a bit more about how gender has played a role here? Yes, as I said before, the data is still coming in, but uh, we think that COVID impacts have likely raised inequalities between countries, within countries, and within homes. It is a truly global phenomenon, so families and teachers have really struggled in high-income countries as well. Uh, if you are a poor or rural person in a high-income country, uh, even in Canada or the UK, your access to remote learning and home learning was worse to begin with. Your learning losses are likely higher. But, uh, but still, you know, if you, I think on the income level point, uh, it's important to remember that the combination of online learning, psychosocial and financial support, other resources, was still in a much better state for high-income countries. Uh, when it comes to gender, gender is an evolving story where we are gathering more data, but it is clear that the, risk, the risks of upending progress uh, made over the past 25 years are high. As we have said in our past gender reports, uh, you know, gender inequality uh, in education is strongly linked to gender relations in society. We find, we're finding that uh, during COVID-19, women are doing much more unpaid work. Homeschooling has been added to the domestic tasks. For girls, there's the problem of a, a strong, uh, likely gender digital divide, especially in poorer countries. The shift to distance learning will disadvantage girls. Uh, women are less likely to have mobile phones or use the internet. So we need direct interventions to, targeted to girls. There's also evidence from previous crises and closures on the effects of, on adolescent girls, on risks of increases in chores, uh, risks of adolescent pregnancy, uh, early school, um, early marriage, you know, sexual and gender-based violence, uh, all kinds, a host of issues that will uh, lead to early school dropouts. Um, an interesting recent study on Ecuador showed that female students are doing more household uh, tasks, while male students have more leisure in the afternoons, which increases the risk of fatigue, you know, even female, female students. So many, uh, many stories and an evolving story. Thank you so much. Um, my next question is linked to that. Um, what role do digital and remote education play in the future of education? And what are the, some of the key barriers you see here? I, I think the, the real, uh, there's a lot of promise, but the real issue with digital and remote education is whether the ambition and the ideas really uh, pan out in reality, you know, and, and often they do not. Uh, going back to this point of what is happening uh, in, the, in poorer countries, there's really such a massive gap in online learning possibilities. Uh, UNESCO found that early on, many governments were prioritizing online distance learning, but you know, almost half of the primary and secondary students did not have access to internet at home. And the reality is quite stark, you know, because even the lower tech solutions like radio and TV are 
not often reaching out for the, to the poor. Um, so, and, and many, many sort of recent cases, for example, in pa research from Pakistan, from the Center for Global Development in June, has shown that during school closures, two thirds of children were not using TV or mobile for learning. So yes, there's a consistent challenge of, uh, I think, um, you know, the, of using all of these technologies and uh, new ideas to really maintain learning continuity. We have to recognize the sort of pre-existing situation and build back better for a more resilient system that, uh, that you know, can actually effectively sustain. Thank you so much, Priyadarsani. Do you see that the challenges would be persisting in countries that are recovering from COVID at unequal rates? Uh, yes, Manoj, I think the challenges are likely to persist if countries are unable to recover, uh, especially on the financial end. Um, up to mid-September, COVID-19 response funding was amounting to in 11.8 trillion overall, uh, but only 91 billion went to education, and this is only 0.78%. On top of that, only 73 billion went to high-income countries. This in a time when lower income countries are likely to face you know, massive shortfalls in government financing, um, you know, household employment loss um, and, and also aid declines. We uh, at the team have emphasized remediation and re-enrollment re strategies. Our financial cost scenarios have highlighted that even if we agree that COVID will add to the billions, it would cost to achieve SDG4 if you act early with strategies like campaigns and targeting the vulnerable, you know, providing extra teacher supports we're likely to reduce the needed, needed cost by up to two thirds. You know, essentially prevention is better than you know, fixating on the cure. A big challenge um, the, for the world and for the international education community is education prioritization. It is something we have seen with our work on refugee crises and emergencies and discussions of climate change and effectiveness. Education is simply not you know, uh, prioritized adequately and even during COVID, the need to embed education as uh, strongly as part of a multi-part strategy is a bit uh, is a bit lost. And we have to do our level best to, um, to you know to not let this become a generational slide. Thank you so much. Um, what are some of the takeaway lessons from COVID that are significant for education system in the future? I think the, the most important part of it is, you know, to build back better, to build a resilience into the system, you have to think about uh, the, you know, the, your situation and then what you can do on top of it, right? So, so I think the most uh, important part of uh, COVID was that it really exposed existing vulnerabilities, uh, existing, you know, lack of infrastructure, existing inequalities. So systems, if they are to be truly resilient, will plan so that there's you know, a better incorporation of these challenges. We, um, I think an interesting example is you know, when we're looking at the migration and displacement report, uh, Jordan had been really thinking through the, the refugee crisis and uh, they had done a lot in their ministerial system to really incorporate Syrian refugees in a more holistic fashion and not treat it as a parallel system of development. So, uh, so you know, what that let them do then is you know, more recently, uh, they have just become more resilient in terms of uh, in terms of you know new crises, so I feel like this you know crisis crisis resilience is an important aspect of this uh, of uh, of the journey for for all education systems, 
And, and I think the, what, what my presentation highlighted uh, is, is also, I think, an important point that uh, what is new and shiny, like online learning approaches, um, cannot become the full story, right? Because you really need to think of it as a portfolio of approaches. Uh, you need to look at the tried and tested things that have worked in your context in the past. Um, and I think the big, the big change will be this uh, discussion of, you know, the, the idea that parents are really the main teachers uh, have really come to the fore, right, in this crisis. So we need to see whether systems will develop so that uh, there can be like this three-part, you know, parent-school-student um, uh, relationship uh, developed in a further. Thanks, Priyadrasni. So my second last question is, what future research questions and uh, or projects are you most considering after this year? So we we sort of have a, an ongoing you know development. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, COVID has become embedded as part of our work. The uh, the main thing that I'm working on is non-state actors in education, which means that you know the, the it's the it's a conversation around the breadth of non-state actors. What what um, what are we doing? Uh, you know, it's not just that private private actors and other non-state actors are providing schooling. Uh, it, it's that they're involved in, um, you know, the, they're involved in a much deeper way in most education systems. So that is sort of our approach. Uh, and that is the sort of data and analysis we're putting together globally on this topic. So we're looking at provision um, at school level. We're looking at private tutoring and its effects. We're looking at, you know, ancillary, other ancillary services. We're looking at the sort of role of different kinds of financiers like corporations and philanthropies. We're looking at the issue of influence in the field of ideas. So, you know, how, how uh, sort of non-state actors are influencing um, the, the developments of education systems like, you know, technology is a good example of this. And, uh, and also, you know, just what does it mean to govern and regulate uh, all of this non-state activity from a country's perspective? So uh, we, we just have, uh, you know, like an ongoing like global agenda that we will keep pursuing. And uh, all going back to the COVID point, uh, you know, we will look at uh, some of these uh, non-state, uh, the roles of non-state actors in from a COVID prism. And uh, we will also, you know, continue monitoring uh, systematically the, the learning losses and the financing situation and that continues. Thanks so much. And that brings uh, to my last question. What advice do you have for students looking to work in the field of international development and education? Um, thank you, Manoj. I, I think it's a, this can be a long answer, but I, I would just start with, you know, recognize again what, where you are. So if you are a younger person who um, has not worked as much in development, take a lot of risks, uh, you know, explore the variety of options, uh, understand one type of career you want, uh, what interests you, uh, whether you think you want to be more of an academic type or a policymaker type or a data scientist or, um, you know, so, or a sort of a program specialist type or whether you want like a portfolio uh, in, the, in the future. In my experience, uh, many people do want some sort of portfolio, but you know, you do have your preferences. So what that does, I think, I think if you are younger and thinking about these things is you then have to think about what are the immediate choices you have to make, right? So you can network, you can talk to many people. I think talking, uh, instead of viewing it as networking, maybe you can just think of it as talking to people who are more senior, whose career paths you uh, want to emulate and just hearing from them the steps they took to achieve where they are. Uh, if you find yourself to be more of a thinker, I do think that, you know, think seriously about academia, but it does have its, has its own 
uh, it comes with this opportunity costs and also you know positioning right so so you just have to recognize i think who you are and how you build from that um, but I think international development and education, it is a very different world, uh, depending on which part of the world you're in. I think um, America, you know, the uh, Europe, uh, Asia, it will all be quite different. Uh, so I feel like it also depends on your flexibility of, you know, where you want to live and how much you want, you know, contact with the ground, how much you want to do global work. So yeah, a, a host of factors. And I would just urge people to um, you know, always build in some time in their, I don't know, week or month to think reflectively on the bigger picture questions of, uh, of their career alongside, you know, the sort of the detailed, right, the, the for finishing the homework and finding the next job. Um, and that would be my <laughs> the starting point, I think. Thanks again to Priya Darsani for taking the time to talk with us today. You can find more information about her work on the GEM report with the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization at en.unesco.org forward slash GEM hyphen report. You can also learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's research and upcoming events at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening and we will see you back soon.